0: Can you hear me? Yeah. Good, right, my mic's working, if I turn it on. Um, <laughs> right, um, today's Palm Sunday and um, we're looking at Jesus's entry into Jerusalem and it's one of only ten events in Jesus's life that's in all four Gospels. Um, The first two, if you're interested, is that he started his ministry in Galilee and that he fed the 5,000. Feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle in all four gospels. And the others, the the seven, are betrayal of Judas, Peter's denial, Pilate's sentence, his crucifixion, his death, his burial in the tomb, and Easter Sunday. So this, this entry into Jerusalem is very important. Because each of the Gospels was written in turn, and each Gospel writer decided, even though that's in the previous book, I'm going to write it in as well. Because I really want to explain this, because it's, it's pivotal. And it really is pivotal, because, well, first of all, you need to set the context. Jerusalem had about ten to 20,000 people living in it at this time. To put that in context... Um, Uh, Philippi had about 10,000, so smaller than Jerusalem. Ephesus had 250,000, so an awful lot bigger. And Rome, a million. But it's a reasonable size. But we have a census from about a Passover about 10 years after this Passover that we're reading about. And it explains that on the Passover, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. 255,000 now under the Levitical under the Levitical laws a lamb could cover up to 10 people a family for their sins so it would not be it not would be stretching thing to say that the number of people who come to this town of 10 to 20,000 people for the passover is about a million so there's a million people heading for a town that normally has 10 to 20,000 people living in it And this is the biggest week in the Jewish calendar. It's critical. And it's critical for the main reason that um, a lot of religions like a lot of people to come, and that's money. It's critical because every Jew under Exodus 30, verse 11 to 16, had to pay a temple tax. And that temple tax was half a shekel. And so you had to get a shekel to pay half a shekel. And so they had money changers. So all the different currencies that were coming from all over the Mediterranean could change their money into shekels. And the rates fluctuated as to how much you could change because this was the year, this was the time of the year for the Jews really to fill up the coffers at the temple. Huge sum of money, million people coming, And it was particularly important this year because Pilate, we know, had built an aqueduct to bring water to Jerusalem. It was always a problem in Jerusalem, water. And he'd built a 35 kilometer aqueduct, which is still there. You can see bits of it. And he built it and there were caused riots. Why? Because he paid for it by taking the money from the temple. He took the Korban the temple monies. So the coffers of the temple were low. And this was the opportunity to fill them up. And all these people are coming. And on top of that, the Jews were very proud of the fact that they were one of the few religions that the Romans still allowed to carry on worshipping. Now, the reason I've said all that is to make you realize the sort of tension that the Jewish leaders were under in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There's a million people coming, this is really important, this has got to be a success. And then we see what Jesus does against that context. Because what Jesus does in the run up to this is a totally different approach to anything he's ever done before. If you look at Jesus' miracles that he did and the people that he healed, the common theme is he tended to do it in private. And he tended to tell people, don't go and tell anyone. And when demons said, you are the Messiah, he said, go out, don't tell anyone. He kept them quiet. Whereas once he got towards this Passover, this thing, John tells us of something that he did. The whole of John has got, because all the gospels have got it. John, the chapter before this, is about the healing of Lazarus. Well, not the healing, the raising from the dead. And it's a totally different miracle to anything else that Jesus did because we're told in John that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but yet when he heard that he was ill, he deliberately stayed two extra days. And it says in John, he stayed two extra days because Jesus said, I'm staying two extra days because this is to reveal the glory of God. It's not until he knows Lazarus is dead that he goes. Because he says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad, because it will show you the glory of God. And when he gets there and asks for the tomb to be opened, they say "But he's been dead for four days and there's gonna be a terrible smell, and he says, I don't care, roll away the stone, and there's a massive crowd there. There's not just a few people, Jesus gets an entire crowd there. And he rolls away the stone, and Lazarus comes out, and also he prays just before Lazarus comes out. He says, God, I'm praying out loud, not because I need to, but because I want these people to hear it. And Lazarus staggers out, we're told, wrapped in his grave clothes, including his face. He waddles out, mummified. And there's a crowd there. This is a complete piece of theater. Contrasted with any other miracle that Jesus done, when's he ever got a crowd and really, really emphasized, want you to all to see this? And it's quite, it's quite incredible because John eleven forty five 45 tells us this, many Jews then came to visit and they came And they spoke with Lazarus and because of that, they believed in Jesus and they came back to Jerusalem and they told the leaders, this is happening about four weeks before the Passover. And it builds. People are going out to Jerusalem and they're going to see Lazarus. This man who was dead and has risen again. And it got so bad during the run-up to the Passover that this is what the Jewish leaders said if we let him go on like this, this is verse 48, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and they'll take away our temple and our rights as a Jewish nation. And the high priest at the time famously says, though he doesn't know what he's saying, it's far better that one man should die for the whole world than that we should suffer. So what you can see here is, there's an amazing miracle And it is really scaring the Jewish leadership in this run-up because people are going out to Bethany, two miles outside where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And now we come to Jesus' coming. He comes from Jericho, 15 miles away. And what does he do? On the way from Jericho, and there will be a big crowd because it's not just the people from Jericho. If you know Israel, basically anyone from the north of Israel tended to travel down the Jordan Valley and turn right at Jericho. That was the easiest way to get to Jerusalem because you had water all the way and it was flat. You didn't want to go through the desert. So this is a main thoroughfare. So, and we're told, we're told that um, when he leaves Jericho, Jesus already has a large crowd. And that large crowd's going along and a man called Bartimaeus who's blind calls out, Jesus, son of David, I want to see. And Jesus tells the man to come to him. And when he comes to him, he says, Your faith has made you healed. And then we're told Bartimaeus joined the crowd and went with them. So that day, as that crowd is travelling with Jesus towards Jerusalem, there's a man running around in the crowd saying, I can see. I've been blind for years and years and years and I can see. And do you know why I can see? He told me I can see because I believed that he's the Messiah. He said, my faith has made me see. How how incredible. Can you imagine what would do that to a crowd? Imagine being in a big crowd with someone running around and everyone saying, he's absolutely right, he's been blind, he's been sitting outside Jericho for years. And this is amazing. So it's all hyping up. And then does he go straight to Jerusalem? No, we're told he doesn't. We're told in John, he goes from Jericho and he goes to Bethany. And that's where he stays the night. With Lazarus. The man who died a month ago, the man who everyone's going out to see, that's where he stays. He stays with Lazarus. And the crowd, we're told in John, gets even bigger. It's a massive crowd. And there he is with Lazarus. In fact, when the reports get back to the Jewish leaders that that's where he's gone, John chapter, two, John, uh, tells us the chief priests then made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Because so many people were believing in Jesus because they could meet Lazarus who had died. So the next day, John 12, 12, this huge crowd goes up to Jerusalem. Now this crowd is huge. This crowd could potentially be more than the population of Jerusalem. Jerusalem we've got a million people coming in and we've got 10 to 20,000 people. These are not the people of Jerusalem. This is the crowd coming in, these are the pilgrims coming in and then Jesus does something that he has never ever done in his entire life before as far as we're aware. He arranges transport. Jesus never arranges transport. He walks everywhere. But then this time, as we read in the passage, he's very, very careful to arrange specific transport. And the transport he arranges would have been 100% clear to the Jewish leaders. Because they knew that when the Messiah came, the prophecy was he would come from the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah 9.9, he would be riding on a donkey. In fact, the Mount of Olives is still to this day the most sought after place for a Jew to be buried on. If you go to the Mount of Olives, it's covered in tombs because that's where the Messiah is gonna come first. So they wanna be there first. And so they would have seen him deliberately arranging and diverting to come over the Mount of Olives on this, on this, on this donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, Daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which is exactly what Jesus chose to ride on. And they would know that that's exactly what Solomon rode on, who built the first temple in 1 Kings 132, we're told that what Solomon rode for his coronation was a donkey just like this. What King David rode on was a donkey just like this. But this crowd is really, really scaring everyone because um, Matthew 21.10 tells us that when Jesus enters, the cru- enters into Jerusalem with this crowd, the whole city, the population in the city was stirred up and they asked, who is this? Because Jesus didn't do an awful lot of miracles in Jerusalem. He'd been doing them in Galilee and in the north. He was not as well known in Jerusalem. And so they answered, this is Jesus, the prophet, the Messiah from Galilee, because they didn't know who it was. And then John 12, 17 tells us the crowd that entered in with Jesus included, John 12, 17, it included the crowd that had been there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they continued to spread the word. Lazarus was probably with him. So there's these people saying, he raised them, do you want to see him? He's just over here. So the conclusion of the chief priests was this. This is what they said in John at the end of this story of the triumphant entry. They said this, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And hence, all four Gospels describe this as the triumphant entry. But was it? Did this crowd really worship Jesus? That's the question, because what they were singing, unknown to them, or maybe it was, was from Psalm 118. Those words, the praise words of Psalm 118. Now, that is not one of the Psalms of Ascent, The Psalms of Ascent are sung and sung to this day by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem to the Passover and those are Psalm 120 to 134. This is Psalm 118 and Psalm 113 to 118 are the Hallel Psalms which are sung during the Passover itself. So when Jews are celebrating the Passover this is the last song they sing in their Passover meal together. And... If you sing that song, then, um, well, it's clear, because it says in John 12, the disciples didn't even understand everything that was going on. It says it was only after Jesus was glorified they understood this. And they didn't understand it, but the, 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 the psalm that they're singing is the Passover psalm itself. And um, if they'd really understood it, they'd have looked at another verse, a verse that all Christians know. Because the verse that they were singing was verse 24. Two verses further back, the verse is, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what they're singing from, that Jesus is going to be rejected. That's not what the crowd thought. The crowd got their palm leaves out, like palm leaves. This whole talk could be basically described as palm leaf versus donkey. Because palm leaves were associated at this time with the revolt of Judas Maccabeus. In 167, a king of Syria had captured Jerusalem and what he did in 167 BC, if you imagine this for a Jew, he sacrificed a pig on an altar to Zeus in the temple of, and so the temple was desecrated. A pig on an altar to Zeus in the temple. Judas Maccabeus arose and on the 25th of December, 165 BC, he rededicated the temple and they sacrificed again, having cleansed it from what had happened and taken back Jerusalem. And what the people did in 165 BC was they cut down palm leaves and they went triumphantly around Jerusalem So the palm leaf had become a symbol of Jewish national sovereignty, of freedom, of independence. So waving the palm leaf is in effect a clear declaration that they're saying you're going to run the Romans out. You're going to give us back our city again, just like Judas Maccabeus did. That's what you're going to do. And that's why they were waving and cheering and crying because they thought the Messiah had come. They thought the Messiah, and they knew the Messiah was going to reign forever. And so this was the reestablishment of Judah. This was the reestablishment of Jerusalem. That's why they were cheering. But um, if they'd known all that was going on here, they would see it differently because all four gospel accounts tell us that the donkey was tethered. All four of them make that point, it's tethered. And when Israel blessed his 12 sons in Genesis, and he came to the blessing of Judah, of the tribe of Judah in which Jerusalem is built, he said, Judah would hold the power of Jerusalem and be the capital and hold that power until the true owner of the power came and tethers his donkey, Genesis 49 verse 11. And when that happens, that person's garment will be soaked in red wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So someone is going to come at the tethered donkey and his clothes are going to go red. Wine, communion, crucifixion on tethering a donkey. And Judah's reign will end, Jerusalem will be finished. And Palm Sunday falls on the 10th day of Nisan, which is the Jewish month. And it says in Exodus, the 10th day of Nisan is when, Exodus 12, verse 3, you must choose the lamb that you're going to sacrifice. So what that crowd didn't realize was they were coming with the lamb that was to be sacrificed. That was the day to choose it. That was the day that Jesus went up. And the first place that Jesus did, went to was the temple. And that lamb was looked after for four days. And on the 15th day of Nisan, it was sacrificed. The very day that Jesus died. Chosen on the 10th, sacrificed on the 15th. 1,500 years after that order was given in Exodus for the first Passover. So... What you see here is is Jesus is coming. He is going to be the stone that is rejected because that's in the song that they're singing. He is going to have his raiment. He is the lamb that has been chosen to be sacrificed. Judah is coming to an end. In fact, this crowd is cheering for Jesus to throw the Romans out, but Jesus is actually coming to throw the temple out, to throw their religion out. And the high priest, in many ways, was right when he said, our temple's at risk here. Because Luke tells us in his account that on the way in, on that very day, before he entered Jerusalem, Jesus stopped and he wept over it. And he said, there are going to be siege ramps put up against you. And there will not be one stone left on top of another. And your people will be slaughtered. And within 40 years, that's exactly what happened. Ramps were put out. The general Titus, who became the emperor Titus, took the city, and the temple was destroyed. A temple had stood in that spot for a thousand years, and none has ever stood there since. No more sacrifices are made on the Temple Mount and haven't been for two thousand years. For a thousand years, it had stood and the Jews instead were taken into slavery and helped to build the Colosseum. And Jesus explains why the temple was destroyed. Because he goes into the temple, as you know, and he throws the tables of the money changers over. And he says, a quote from Isaiah and a quote from Jeremiah. And whenever you get Jesus quoting scripture, big hint, go and look it up and read the whole thing, not just the little bit. Because if you read that, you find out that the... What he quotes from Isaiah is, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's meant to be a blessing for everyone. When Abraham was blessed, his blessing for the Jews was through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But that wasn't what was happening. Because these money changers and these stalls and these markets... They were in the biggest part of the temple, not the temple proper. They were in the court of the Gentiles. There was no room for the Gentiles to come in because it was a marketplace. And what Jesus did was to throw them all out. He was to throw every single one out. And it was a place as well where you bought your doves and your sheep. And if you bought your doves and your sheep there, you were guaranteed they would be accepted by the priests. If you brought your own, they might not be accepted and you'd have to buy another one. In fact, Gamaliel's son once got the price of a dove for someone reduced by 99% when he told him his dad was in the Sanhedrin. That's what was going on in this place, which was meant to be a place to welcome everyone. And he quotes from Jeremiah as well, Jeremiah chapter 7. And Jeremiah chapter 7 is where the... He says, a, a, a den of robbers. This is what this passage says. God saying to them, do not trust the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and come and stand before me in the temple that bears my name and do detestable things and think that I am not watching and that I will not destroy it. And he did with Nebuchadnezzar. And so what is happening here is this crowd is cheering, thinking that he is coming to bring peace, get rid of the Romans, and re-establish everything. Whereas, in fact, he's coming and he's saying, in what he, do, what he, what he says to them, no, I have come because the temple is finished. Your way of worshipping is finished. So what does all that mean for us? That's an interesting history lesson. You can see the passage read all four accounts and compare them because it's all there but what does it mean for us and i think it's three things first question is has our nation the western world america got the wrong idea about jesus because how many people turn around and say to you jesus was meant to bring peace and happiness"? What's God allowing this pandemic to happen for? What's God allowing the war in Ukraine to happen for? What is God doing for that to happen? I thought it was meant to be peace. That's what he's meant to be bringing in. Yes, Jesus was bringing in a kingdom of gentleness and peace and love, but Jesus never promised, and the Bible's never promised, that there would be no war, no famine, and no plagues after he came. On the contrary, if you read Revelation six, we are promised that people will seek to conquer, that men will kill each other for no real reason, that life will be unfair and corruption will rule and there will be death by sword, famine and plague. In other words, what's happening in Syria, in Ukraine, in the Yemen, in the pandemic is exactly what the Bible said would happen. But what Jesus said would happen instead was that his kingdom would stand against that throughout the globe from sea to sea, it says in Zechariah, but not by violence, but by gentleness, peace, love, and generosity. And so God's kingdom is seen in the welcome hub. At this church and in the welcome hubs, they give them different names. In Poland and throughout Eastern Europe, of people in love reaching out in generosity against that violence. Secondly, when Jesus powerfully comes to any place, it's not uncommon for the greatest shock to be felt in the established church. Here were the Jews thinking, the Romans are on their way out here, but it was their entire way of worship. No church can rest on its heritage. No church can look to the good old days and think that that means anything for the future. It can only rest confident if it remains a house of prayer for everyone who comes and seeks and helps them generously when they need help. Because Matthew 21-14 tells us what happened after the money changers were thrown out. It says Jesus in that uh, court of the Gentiles healed everyone who came and gave healing and thirdly a message for ourselves because John after this as to Je- Jerusalem Jesus entered into Jerusalem John accounts that some Greeks come up to Philip because Philip has a Greek name and he was from a, uh, a, a Greek gen- uh, Gentile town and they said to him we want to see Jesus and so Philip goes and said look there's a bunch of Greeks who want to see you and Jesus says something really that is that's, that's quite incredible. He, says, he basically says, they will see me, but, but not now when I'm glorified. When the real thing happens. Not now when there's tens of thousands of people cheering my name and praising me as the Messiah. Not now when I'm a donkey walking in as if I am the Messiah, riding down from Galilee and... Uh, Arising down from the Mount of Olives. No, he says, I'll see them when, he says, I'm glorified and I'll tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. And he goes on to say that basically my glory, my triumphal entry into Jerusalem is not Palm Sunday. It's Good Friday. That's my triumph. That's my success. But when I am lifted up from the earth, then I will draw all men to myself. Not, not what happened on Pam Sunday because those people were looking for a different Jesus, the Jesus they wanted. Whereas the Jesus that we're called to follow on, Jesus never said, those who must follow me must take up their palm leaf and wave it around and praise and shout and join the crowd. He said, those who must follow me must take up their cross and follow me. So my prayer is that this Easter week, we would each look to see Jesus, the real Jesus. Not the one we'd like to see, but the real one. And seek to understand what it means for us as a church to follow him and for us individually to take up our crosses. Amen. I don't know about you but i think that's given us a lot to think about i think we might need to listen to it again and then have another think Um, but i echo alan's prayer that uh, as we look towards easter then we need to think about what it means to take up our crosses and follow jesus